0: Welcome to Forecast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Well, we are so glad that you are with us again this week. Thank you very much for having us into your offices and homes and earbuds and on your treadmills. It is a great privilege to be with you, and we do not take it for granted. We have a great Farcast for you this evening. From the floor of the Chicago Exchange, we have the great Jim Urio. If you want to talk to a pro's pro, you go talk to Urio. You like the way I did that? (laughs) Uh, In segment number two, we've got Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He's an expert on China, an expert on security. He speaks Mandarin Chinese. Can't wait to talk to Dan. And then finally, uh, we have Lester Munson, Uh, a Washington insider. We're going to be talking about the State of the Union. We're going to be talking about David Malpass, now going to head the World Bank. David, a great friend of mine uh, for a long time, years and years I've known, David. Um, Anyway, on the forecast, remember that we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And finally, above all, we believe that emotion... Listen, folks, is the foe of the long-term investor. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient, check your feelings at the door. Remember, in the fish market, they say, ignore the screaming and the yelling. Pay attention to the price of fish. With that, the guy who's better at pricing fish than anybody else I know is Jim Murillo. Jim, welcome back to the forecast.
1: Is that really a saying about the fish at the fish market? Did you just make that up? (laughs)
0: Listen, I've used that for years, and as far as you know, it's entirely credible.
1: Okay, good. I'm in.
0: (laughs) And and, uh, it may come as no shock or surprise, but I've got more than that. (laughs) Uh, Jim, uh, you've been doing such an excellent job on CNBC, really providing a lot of insight, a a lot of wisdom. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you see Urio in that uh, blue jacket on TV, turn up the volume and listen. What are we thinking about markets here? Today was a little bit off, but overall they've been doing fine, huh? No,
1: they've been doing great, up 16% from that low we put in. I believe it was December 24th. Um, that made sense, and we've talked about that since then. You know that the, the correction that we saw was, you know, significant. It was obviously people panicking, but that 2300 was my line in the sand, and it proved to be a, a decent one so far. Um, so this rally, although you know the, the strength of it is is pretty impressive. I I, I believed it was going to rally, and I don't believe me. I don't. I, I like patting myself on the back, but this is just this is just the fact. Now looking forward, though. Now I know this. Yeah, is... but
0: you were right. You said you thought that this is what we'd see, and we've seen it, which is important to say because people should be listening to you, and it's I... one of the be- more most important reasons they should be listening to the forecast, because we well, <laughs> have period.
1: I appreciate that, but what's important now is everyone knows what's happened over the last month. Now we look forward. So. You know, I know people are listening to this too, but do yourself a favor, put up about a year chart of the S&P's. There's something that's very uh, important that's coming up that's that's right now that it's on the radar and that's the 2800 level some people think about technical analysis like it's some sort of voodoo it's not it's just what it is does is measures market psychology as we get to that level we were at what about 2730 days so it's 70 handles away in the S&P my belief is that something fundamental needs to change and I think what I'm saying is that there has to be a tangible believable solution to the trade uh, the trade tussle with China and and again this that this all might be nonsense and we'll look back at it in 2 years saying what we pretended to agree upon or didn't but the market has to believe it so from both sides uh, from the US and from China, they have to convince the market that things are over and there's blue skies ahead. Now, part of the 16% rally has been good news coming out of that. And the the government reopening, was which was about to start dragging on GDP. And I know we rallied a ton while the government was shut down. And I don't think it's a big deal. I have it as a secondary deal, maybe even a third deal. But... To me it's something has that to significant be tertiary. A tertiary tertiary. That's, I thought it was in my head popped the word tertiary and then I thought it was wrong so I didn't use it. I shouldn't have doubted myself, I swear to God. But Don't anyway, doubt yourself. <laughs> okay. If we go above twenty eight hundred, to me I think something has to change to to fuel that and then I think we head for those old highs again.
0: Okay, so now you said two important things here. One, we've had a twenty six percent I'm sorry, sixteen percent rally, right? Yep. Okay, 16% rally from December the 24th. In your experience, would you expect a pullback? Would you expect a pullback, of of, give back half of that, say, uh, and and give a little bit of a downward test, establish a, a bit of a higher bottom before we really move higher? Or is this kind of backing and filling that we've seen in the last week or two enough for you?
1: No, I I believe we could. Today, actually, it's funny you should ask. Today, I turned some of my call spreads into call condors, meaning I sold some. I I made them less aggressive on the upside, and I actually bought some put spreads that I I talked about um, today, if people were watching the videos, Um, just because I think that, yeah, 16% seems far fast. Uh, I do think we're going to come within spitting distance of 2,800 sometime within the next couple of weeks. But then that March 1st deadline that, that the president's given us for when we're going to hear some from China, you know, that could be a big deal.
0: Where, so you say, so Uriel, ladies and gentlemen, is saying that uh, there's more upside here, but he feels like there's a Chinese size and shape roadblock at 2,800 that we're not going to get past unless we can pass this big uh, Chinese trade war kidney stone.
1: Can I, can, I, can I put one more thing in, too? And this is yeah. something that I believe has been overarching for the past two years. And it's, it's interest rates. And I still think interest rates are the, the main thing here. We, in 2018, when rates were going up and the market believed they were going up too far too fast, that was part of the reason we saw year-long volatility. One of the reasons we've seen the 16% rally off the lows – I did mention that we've heard some good news out of China, but realistically, the Fed's pivot towards, okay, we're data dependent now, I think is is every bit the biggest driver. I think that, you know, there's you can't fight the Fed. So rates are the biggest issue. Earnings are the second biggest issue and earnings have been mixed, but relatively positive. And then, but yes, I do believe China has to be fixed. And at the same time, the Fed can't meet that with a hammer and say, okay, now that China's fixed, we're back on the automatic. uh, Oh, that's a
0: good point. That's a really good point. So that if we have the good news out of China, we can't let the Fed kill that. Uh, you know, as a newborn. That,
1: that's... Right, and I, I believe that's a sad commentary that we're both saying, too, that the Fed has to green light this rally, because realistically, deep down, people don't believe the conditions are perfect um, in this country for us to really have 3 4% GDP without a little bit of a Fed assistance. It's nice that it's only a little bit right now. It used to be this huge Fed push, and now that rate's at 3% at least it, it's in the right direction.
0: Well, but we still, okay, so if, I don't know. Did you hear Janet Yellen today? I mean, she was, she was uh, I, I thought, very balanced. I thought she was very articulate and clear. And, and she was saying that she thought that the Fed's, Fed was doing exactly the right thing. She didn't see inflation. She thought that the growth was there. She thought that Jay Powell had, had done the right thing. And, and that the runoff of the Fed's huge uh, multi-trillion dollar bond portfolio uh, could even be brought into consideration as perhaps something that they might slow in the future. So you, you know, uh, not only Jim, as you were saying, are we can we achieve growth without the Fed stimulus, and that might be a little unsettling. In fact, we're achieving some reasonable growth with the Fed headwind of that portfolio runoff, dumping more supply into the marketplace.
1: I know, but can we really call it a a Fed headwind when it's just really taking away the huge tailwind that they had I, I mean I guess yeah that makes some sense to me too but you know the reality of it is is what we want is what we saw on the Friday of that unemployment number that just printed that big I think it was 305 was the headline number yeah, yeah, so if yeah, we can if we can believe that we are underestimating the growth of the economy, but still the Fed has handcuffs um, on because of China, then that's when the stock market could do its best. And and again, it, that would mean that the Fed is making a slight mistake to the more dovish side and perhaps running the risk of inflation in the future. But I think the market can be fine with that in the short term and say, OK, you guys are, are keeping money cheap and things are going good. So let's pile in.
0: So. As we look forward here, at let's, so we've got this 2,800 uh, log jam that, that we need to get through. We've got this Chinese log jam that we need to get through. If we just, if, if, if Far and Urio just parse through the economic and market tea leaves sitting here in the beginning of February, and let's try and fast forward to December, does this feel like a positive year to you in the building and the making?
1: It does. It does, because I believe that we will get some believable news on China. And I think that'll happen relatively soon. And I have no problem with something you just alluded to before, a, a back and fill a pullback. I could see us pulling all the way back to, you know, call it 2650, maybe even at the outset at the, the worst possible would be 2600 in my mind. But then I think we do push through that ultimately push to that 2800 level and run for the highs. And I do think it's going to be a good year. And remember, we look at corrections and I know that we did get our 20 percent, but corrections are made up not just of price, but of of time. And realistically, it's been a year, a year from the 2nd of yes. February. So a year and four days that we began this corrective phase. A year is a pretty long time. I mean, sure, it could go, it could be a year and a half, but I don't see it being two years.
0: So I think that I would feel a lot better, Jim Urio, if we had that pullback, if we actually maybe moved back to that 2650 level and then started to move back there, that we would wash out some of those weak hands. But tell me what you think uh, about a couple of other log jams coming up. Might we, how will the markets react if we have another government shutdown over the wall? Or, more important, we still have to have a budget. We still have to have some sort of continuing resolution that we're running out of this current spending authorization that the government has now. And there's another deadline coming up in March for that. Those two issues on your radar...
1: Only mildly so. Government shutdowns historically have not been that market negative. Prior to this one, the average market performance during a government shutdown has been zero. Not positive, not negative, when you average them all together. And this one, obviously, we did very, very well. And clearly there was other things happening. I'm not suggesting for one second that because of the government shutdown we were rallying. But it definitely wasn't that big of an anchor. So I'm not – I think people – are fine with ignoring those things and believing they're just short-term political stunts. And this one actually started to oddly get in to a troubling time right at the end of it. But then, of course, the politicians were then smart enough to know to reopen the government before it could be a GDP drag. So, no, I'm not worried about those things. And if I am, it's very mildly so.
0: Okay. So your forecast as we look out and as we get ready to leave each other right now uh, sounds. Uh, how do I say it? Cautiously
1: optimistic, or more? Yeah, but cautiously optimistic is so trite. I guess what I'd say. Nah, That's you what know I what? You say it's... all
0: the time, you can't say it's trite. That's my go-to
1: line. <laughs> well, then you know what? I was going to go back to say, the... yeah, I guess that sounds right. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not wildly optimistic, but I think we're going to solve this China thing, and I believe that we're going to head for the highs. Uh...
0: Sadly, and this ought to scare you, Jim, Far agrees with Urio. There's, oh, wow. Uh, there's, <laughs> I know. You, you, ought to, you need to go check your numbers again. Hey, Jim Urio, thank you so much for being with us on the Farrcast. This is Jim Urio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, a pro's pro, one of the best CNBC contributors there is. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. We're going to be talking about Washington. We're going to be talking about the State of the Union. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Capitol Hill and how Nancy Pelosi looked like maybe she had something stuck in her teeth last night. We're going to be right back. Stay with me on the
2: forecast. You're listening to Forecast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller & Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, Or call me at 202 530 5608. You're listening to Forecast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Forecast. I am Michael
0: Farr. Uh, This week from Naples, Florida, uh, I'd love to tell you all uh, that it is absolutely miserable here cold, wind, rain, but that ain't the truth. It is absolutely lovely. You all should come to Naples, Florida. I know. Half of you just turned it off, and and you hate me now. Uh, The other half, give me two or three minutes. You, too, can learn how to hate me about this. Uh, Listen, uh, we had a terrific (laughs) session with Jim Muriel, Dan Mahaffey coming on just right now, and then Les Munson coming up in segment three. Uh, We're going to talk a little State of the Union with Les, and we're also going to talk about uh, our friend David Malpass, uh, who's going to the – uh, run the World Bank, and he's been a huge critic of the World Bank. It ought to be fascinating. And by the way, I've known David for years. He has a very talented son. Here's a, here's a fun fact you're not going to hear anywhere else. David Malpass, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, incoming head of the World Bank, has a son named Brian Malpass, who you can find if you uh, uh, YouTube or Google him. He is a fabulous singer, uh, recording artist. He uh, works at Disney and uh, really one of the coolest singers you're ever going to want, a young Brian Malpas, is just a really cool guy. So that's David's son. Uh, in the greater scheme of things, he got a lot more of the family personality than his father, but uh, his father's a really smart guy. Dan Mahaffey is a really <laughs> smart guy who is the uh, strategist at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the Senior Political Analyst for the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan.
3: Thank you, Michael. I, I don't know if the World Bank has an official anthem, but I guess we know who will sing it uh, if, if they we, do.
0: We do. And let me tell you, if Brian Malpass writes it, uh, it, it could be very, very catchy. I mean, this guy's good. I like listening to Brian. Uh, and, I, and if you want to see, David Malpass is an economist. He is an economist and economist to his toes. So it is very, um, it, it's very difficult. You're never going to see him excited because he's an economist. You're never going to see him really animated because he's an economist. But if you talk to him about his son, Brian, uh, the guy really lights up, and it's absolutely endearing. So, uh, Dan Mahaffey, uh, State of the Union last night. Yeah. Tell us what you thought.
3: Well, I think it was interesting to see the president, the the White House tried to say that this would be a, a unifying speech, but the the tone he immediately took in his rhyming phrase of uh, no legislation, uh, with the war and investigation, something along those lines, really set the tone of that it's it's still going to be a very combative uh, approach to the coming years, and in a sense, you know, all, I could down, think
0: of, all I could think of, Mahaffey, was if the glove don't fit, you can't convict. I mean yeah, it was right there, wasn't it? Mean, something up there.
3: And, <laughs> yeah, someone in the White House with a cheap rhyming dictionary. Uh, trying to figure this out. But beyond that, the the tone on the wall where you have Congress trying to negotiate at least some kind of uh, halfway measure, which is generally what the American people support. We want some way to protect the rights of of the DREAMers, uh, to have a a more uh, secure yet still open immigration system. And, And nor do many Americans think we need barriers along the entire border when we have technology more border agents, things like that of that nature that can that can solve this. So you have that dynamic where he is almost torpedoing the negotiations that are going on, um, but also trying to show his base that he's still pushing for this issue. So it's it's almost like the opening salvo of the of the twenty twenty campaign. Um, I think too when he he lumped all the Democratic policies together uh, as socialism, and though even though Democrats are going to the left in their primary, uh, it's still really a, a framing exercise going into 2020 um, and then throw in the, the comments on abortion and you have sort of an, uh, an icing on the cake that he made for the base.
0: So let's stop there for a second. And that's, let me let me ask you that. So if last night could be considered uh, the beginning of President Trump's re-election campaign for the 2020 election. Uh, How did he do? What sort of a service or disservice do you think the State of Union did in establishing his early candidacy?
3: Well, it's always a great amount of political theater. There's no other candidate that gets that, uh, uh, you know, the free airtime, the circumstance of everyone assembling to hear the, the incumbent speak. So that does have an advantage there. Um, But everyone is going to view it through their own partisan lens. And I think what's really going to be important is where any of these things can be backed up with action, because they have to have something concrete, uh, both sides do, going into 2020 to show that they can govern uh, or continue to govern. And we need to look at examples of that. Is that going to be infrastructure, uh, prescription drug pricing? Uh, perhaps some of these things in terms of family benefits.
0: But there Uh, there you go, looking at facts and details again, Dan. You know, uh, and there's so little in (laughs) politics that really depend on facts and details. I mean, you know, in general, I I have to tell you that I thought that the president last night sounded presidential. I thought that he sounded conciliatory. I thought that he was addressing a a, a group, uh, a number of issues in a more supportive, optimistic way than in the past he has been wont to do. And though I didn't see an enormous amount of substance, I thought the tone was better. And I particularly liked his comments uh, that were so supportive of the women in the audience and the, uh, particularly the new group of women in Congress. Did, am I wrong in my impression there, do you think?
3: I think, look, if he can continue to have that tone uh, today, tomorrow, and the next few days, you know, I haven't seen if he's been on Twitter too much today. You know, if he can kind of continue to to keep that tone, people would see a welcome change. But uh, we have this uh, kind of each time he's done the State of the Union, you don't get that sense of the leopard changing his spot when it comes to his political tone and a brand that is, is fundamentally political combat. That's his brand. Um you know and I think interesting too is how you you mentioned the comments towards the the new uh female legislators uh, I think some of them were also kind of laughing saying that uh you know they Trump's uh, job creation for women was really great because it got all these uh women elected members of congress
0: well <laughs> there is some irony uh there is some irony in that but it, it, you know I talked with my father this morning. My father is uh, 93 years old, and he can be uh, very skeptical about a lot of these political performers. He is a lifelong Washingtonian, uh, so he has seen a lot of presidents in his lifetime, and he watches the State of the Union. He had a very positive reaction. Um, So for that American everyman, World War II veteran that he is, uh, he had a very positive take on it. So I in general i think the president actually did himself some good last night and i hope uh, I, I hope that he's able to continue some of that um, at, at least reaching out a little bit across the aisle the the uh, at, at least the appearance of willing to have some sort of a dialogue uh, we haven't seen a, a whole lot of reason to, to that that he won't go back to his combative stance but let's let's hope for now you know you mentioned Uh, A lot on the uh, international scene, too. Venezuela, Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. Syria, um, and the trade talks. Did we learn anything about which leader in Venezuela we're recognizing and, and what's going on in Afghanistan and Syria? Did he take a different tone? Was there a different message last night from the normal?
3: Well, I think with the speech being short on details and kind of going through foreign policy as a laundry list, as as State of the Unions often do, uh, I think it continued to put pressure on Maduro that we're going to continue to support Guaido uh, and an an alternative political arrangement. Uh, And that's another thing where we've actually got an impressive multilateral approach with partners in the hemisphere as well as other allies supporting us. I, I think on Syria and Afghanistan, the challenge is that, uh, you know, these, these conflicts are ongoing and it's a, a tricky type of security situation where there's, there's not going to be a victory like the, the signing of a treaty on the USS Missouri, uh, but how do you transition away from these conflicts? And still some really tough questions that need to be asked about whether Syria is ready uh, for U.S. withdrawal. Will ISIS come back? And can the Afghan government, even if there are negotiations with the Taliban, stand on its own?
0: Okay, well, let me tell you. So here's a question I have for you, Dan Mahaffey, and, and this might just be because I'm not very bright. But when I listened to the president of the United States saying we are negotiating with the Taliban, I almost jumped up out of my seat and yelled, why in the hell would we negotiate with the Taliban? The Taliban, I thought we were trying to wipe off the face of the earth. Why in God's name? would the United States be sitting down and negotiate with people who, have just, who are terrorists? I didn't think we did that.
3: I think it's a, a reckoning that uh, Afghanistan is always going to have a certain amount of Taliban influence and Taliban-held territory. Uh, and even though they are not uh, a savory group and, and truly barbaric and, and medieval in their mindset in, in many ways, that any political solution in Afghanistan is going to have to have them at the table in some form. Uh, and, and recognizing too that we've, uh, you know, we've killed most of the leaders who were there when they, uh, when they harbored Al Qaeda. Uh, we've developed an infrastructure. We believe that we think can go back if, if Al Qaeda or ISIS do return to Afghanistan, uh, but it's still uh, Tough in the sense of yes, they are that group. They do have that terrible ideology, um, and many Americans have have fought and died uh, combating them.
0: Okay, so are you saying you think it's okay to have these negotiations or not? Because the idea just pisses me off. But are you're saying it's okay, it's an okay thing you think politically for us to be doing?
3: It's one of those it's one of those things politically where you have to choose the least worst option.
0: Oh, no, that's a lot of that in politics. Okay, let 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 me move on. Uh, I need your quick predictions because we always run out of time, and I always learn so much from you, Dan. Uh, uh, Are are we going to have another shutdown uh, coming up over this uh, uh, border
3: wall thing? Odds, yes or no? I I think the odds kind of keep growing. The longer we don't have a solution, let's see how Congress negotiates this week. Uh, But Congress might even rebel and just force the president to either decide whether he's going to own it again although there are rumors in the White House that he, the president might want another shutdown because he thinks he could blame this one on Democrats and clean the slate from the last one.
0: Oh, Lord. And how about the funding uh, limit that we are uh, uh, approaching coming up here in uh, March, isn't it? Yeah, uh, where, where, well, I, where they've got it. Huh?
3: I think, yeah, the, with the, the debt limit and if we can just uh, perhaps get a clean debt limit through, that might happen simply because neither party seems to care about uh, debt and deficits right now. Uh so you think it, that's not going to be a problem?
0: You don't, you don't think we're going to lose
3: government funding? If they can move to get a clean debt limit increase through, uh, they can. If everyone starts to tack on like it's their uh, Christmas tree that they want to decorate with their own projects, that's when it's going to become a problem.
0: Robert Mueller uh, is almost uh, done here, I guess. Uh, how close are we to being done with him? And is there a, a big bomb coming, or is, are we going to wind this down?
3: Well, we were thinking he was going to be do- done, and that's what Acting Attorney General Whitaker was hinting. But now today we have the House Intelligence Committee releasing 7,000-plus pages of testimony from the likes of Steve Bannon, Corey Lewandowski, Pope all those people who uh, testified to Congress during their investigation last year. Those transcripts have now been released to the Mueller investigation, so they can look to see uh, if, there are, if any of them lied to Congress, which is a federal felony.
0: 7,000 pages. So you're telling me we're going to be talking about Mueller for a while longer here?
3: I think a little while longer as they review through these, uh, and uh, it just paints more and more of the, of the story or the, uh, the inability of these all people to keep their uh, story straight and where they've mended the truth. Dan
0: Mahaffey, Washington continues to provide lots of interesting stuff to talk about. I'm sure we're going to have more next week. Thank you so much for being with us again this week on the Farcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay with us. I'm coming back with Les Munson. We're going to talk a little State of the Union from his perspective as a serious D.C. insider with over a quarter of a century on Capitol Hill, in the White House, all over the place. And we're going to talk about David Malpass heading over to the World Bank. What's that going to mean for markets? What's that going to mean for the Washington Dialogue? What's that going to mean for the world stage and world economy? Because that World Bank loans a lot of money across markets around the world. That fuels markets. It'll make a difference to our investors when we come back on The Farcast. You're
2: listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, The Farcast three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and The Farcast. Now more with Michael Farr and The Farcast.
0: Welcome back to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us uh, again. We've had two terrific se- segments uh, tonight, terrific segments. Jim Murio from the floor of the Chicago Exchange, Dan Mahaffey, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, wonderful insights as to what's going on on Wall Street, what's going on in Washington. And as we think about Washington and the rest of the world, it is a great pleasure to welcome back one of our most popular guests, Lester Munson, principal in the, inter- uh, in the International uh, BGR Group. It's a uh, top government relations firm in Washington. He's been in Washington with a 26-year career on Capitol Hill. He was in the executive branch. He was a staff director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was chief of staff. For Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois. I mean, this guy inside Washington is a pro's pro, an insider's insider, uh, graduate of the University of Chicago, master's degree from St. John's College. Hey, Les Munson, welcome back to the Farcast.
4: Thanks, Michael. I am thrilled to be here, sir.
0: Well, we are thrilled to have you. So, so much to talk about here, so much to talk about. Let's start, uh, if, if we can, with the state of the Union, where the President was sort of introduced uh, by the uh, Chief Usher of the House <laughs> was not <laughs> ever introduced by the Speaker of the House um, tell how did you what did you think uh of uh last night's performance
4: well i think for for this president uh it was about as positive and uh, and bipartisan atone as as we've seen from him, and that's certainly a good thing. I think he needs to do more of that he uh He was generous he was uh broad in scope. He was magnanimous. Uh, he displayed a lot of qualities that are we rarely see from him in public. So I think that was all very good. My concerns are largely with the content. I think the meta-message that he was trying to convey to people is that isolationism is a good thing for America, which I totally disagree with. He wants – he talked for a long time about the wall. He wants to build on the border with Mexico for a crisis that I I don't think is all that much of a crisis. He he talked a lot about getting out of – getting the U.S. militarily out of a lot of places, which, generally speaking, is a good thing. But I think what – where he's really trying to go is – uh, let's withdraw from our involvement in the world. Let's focus on ourselves. Let's build strength here, which is which I think is a bit of a mirage. He uh, he's trying to he's he's uh, holding out the false gold of um, of isolationism to people. He put a pretty good spin on it, but ultimately I think that message is a losing one.
0: Tell me, because you're on Capitol Hill and you talk to all of these political folks all the time, uh, how do they read? Uh, the president's emphasis on the Mexican border uh, and his ongoing push for some sort of barricade or wall. How do they read it and are they hearing anything? I mean, you know, politicians walk around one hand in your pocket and the other hand in the wind (laughs) trying to determine which way it's blowing next, right, in Washington. So they'll listen if constituents start calling and telling them they, they really care about this wall. What are they telling you constituents are telling them?
4: So uh, there's no doubt that the immigration issue and a tough immigration line is popular with the Republican base, and that's at the the grassroots. And and why,
0: Les? Why why is that important?
4: It's a great question. Uh, I think you see this in, and I think this is true in a lot of Democrat districts as well, but their politics are a little bit different. Folks, see... Uh, uh, an uncontrolled immigration problem i don 't think that 's actually what 's happening but they 're seeing a what they see is a, an uncontrolled immigration problem from the south. They see a lot of folks coming into either their neighborhood or neighborhoods near them folks that don 't necessarily share their values or their language or their culture or or maybe something else and they and they 're concerned about that they don 't want to see that kind of that kind of unregulated change in their daily life so so this is a there 's a genuine sentiment among a lot of Americans that uncontrolled immigration is a problem. The wall is, uh, say what you want about the issue, the wall is a terrific metaphor that the president uh, has, has glommed onto as a way to express his views on immigration. Like, he's, he's for a wall, therefore he's against uncontrolled immigration. It's a, it's a great, bump, it's, a, it's a bumper sticker, which is the sine qua non of communication in politics.
0: You know, it's a, it's a bumper sticker. I love it. Uh, uh, he said something last night that I found very appealing about immigration, which is what which was that he wanted to see a lot of immigration as long as it 's legal, but he wants to see a lot of immigration that i hadn 't heard from the president and and Now, ladies and gentlemen, I make economic comments about this stuff, not political comments um, so uh, when you look at GDP growth, you look at basically two elements uh you look at the number of workers out there and the growth in your workforce plus the growth in productivity. And one of the ways I talk about this is, if I'm making donuts, how many people do I have making donuts and how many machines do I have making donuts? And as an economist, if I have three people making donuts on three different machines, if I add another person or another machine, I would expect more donuts. And if I look at the broad US economy, how many more people are we adding to the workforce? Well, the U.S. US population is growing at four-tenths of 1%. We have a crisis in this country right now with our population growth. Fertility rates are as low as they have ever been. Women between the ages of 16 and 45 are having fewer children than they've ever had before. So how do I grow my workforce as an economist if I don't have people having enough babies? And the answer is, I need immigrants. And as an economist, I don't care if they're legal or illegal, I don't, I don't care. I just need more people in there making donuts. Now, I will now make a far political comment. I want them to be legal immigrants, okay? I want them to be legal immigrants. But fundamentally, for the purposes of economic growth and a sound economy, we need more workers out there than we've got, and they're not growing fast enough and that's a headwind for economic growth. So I was really encouraged that the president said that. Um, but the other protectionist strains bother me. Did, did overall less? Did he do himself um, uh, justice, or did he do himself any good? As some people have called this the launch of his 2020 re-election campaign, was was it effective?
4: You know, I don't think so. By the way, you talking about donuts really made me hungry. So I, I hope you come up with a different metaphor. Um, uh, I, Harry, I, uh,
0: Harry, donuts for Les Munson, please. Send him, Thank send him you. some donuts, please. Thank you. Yeah. I,
4: my stomach is grumbling. Uh, I, I think it's the wrong. It's, I get the appeal of the issue, and there's no question that a lot of Republican voters like a strong, hard line on immigration. But it's not going to win in the general in 2020. We have... Uh, terrific evidence for this. The last election, just three months ago in November of uh, 2018, Republicans got swamped in the suburbs. This issue is strong, but it only gets you so far. It's not going to persuade the independents and the persuadables in the middle that you're taking the right approach. You have to have something.
0: Uh, okay. Else. So tell me what persuades them. What What is the issue that the president needs to grab hold of in order to advance his cause for 2020.
4: Well, he should be talking about the economy. He should be talking about economic growth. He should be talking about jobs. He's doing some of that, but it's subsumed part beneath of it. this yeah. immigration issue. He needs to, he needs to kind of let go of the immigration issue for a little while. Everyone knows where he stands. Start talking about economic growth. Let's deregulate some more. Uh, let's let's empower our entrepreneurs. Let's be willing to take some more risks in the tax code to get the capital flowing and get jobs going and really help people with their livelihoods and, and see their future is more secure, that's what's going to win him the, those middle-class, persuadable votes in the suburbs. He's really got to think about middle-class voters in the suburbs. He's going to get West Virginia. He's going to get Texas. He needs to go get the suburbs in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, okay, Michigan, and definitely Wisconsin, in
0: Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the president uh, seems to be losing his face in those states. Uh, I mean what looked to be kind of a lock, perhaps even as, as recently as June has eroded yep. a good deal and particularly over the government shutdown so i 'm I'm, I'm a little uh, i 'm just wondering what he has to do to get uh, the, the Republican count back in those in those key states
4: he 's got a great record on the economy he 's got a lot to brag about he, should, he really should focus on those positives. Um, There's probably some social issues uh, that have recently cropped up. They can make a little hay on with uh uh, some folks, because the, where the Democrats are is not super popular. Uh, but I really think his, his main message has to be about people's wallets and their economic futures. They, they, not, they don't need a ton more money. With, in other words, they're not worried about their salary being doubled. What they want is to know that they're going to have a job next year. So if he can get in and talk about economic yeah. security, yeah. about stability, about growth, that's what people want to hear.
0: Lester Munson, I always learn so much when we talk to you. We've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, My friend, longtime friend, um, David Malpass, who uh, David Malpass has been at the Treasury, has been an assistant secretary of Treasury, uh, and now is going to, uh, who has not been uh, very positive about his views on the World Bank, is now nominated by the president to go run the World Bank. Please give me
4: your thoughts about that. I have a bunch of thoughts. David Malpass is a very interesting candidate. First of all, he's six foot seven. Uh, he's a very tall yes. fellow. I think I think that's going to command respect as he walks in the room. That's going to help him. Uh oh, he's, he's a big dealing, dude. Yeah, he's a big guy. He's dealing with a little bit of a of a thorny issue with China. The World Bank's been lending a lot of money to China, even though China's above the kind of the income threshold for a developing country. He's going to likely put a stop to that, or seek to put a stop to that. And I think as his and he's going to come in and say. I want to have a a tough attitude. I want this bank to do the right thing. I want it to do it well. And I want us to get out of the business of loaning money to China. And I think what you're going to see is there's going to be some reforms. There's going to be some movement on this China question. And then I think you're going to see a lot more money going to the World Bank. I think it's very possible David Malpass is a very good thing for the World Bank.
0: That's fascinating. I will tell you, now, I've known David for years, and he and I have spoken, I mean, co-presented uh, at a number of events we did years ago with uh, uh, Charlie Plosser, who was president of the Philadelphia Fed. So Charlie, as president of the Philadelphia Fed, and David was chief economist, I think, at Bear Stearns at the time. And I somehow snuck into the tent uh, <laughs> unnoticed, and we, the three of us, presented. David is a very bright guy, not a funny guy,
4: Les. No, this is this no, is this not. is
0: not Joe. This is not you know Charlie chuckles here. <laughs>
4: <He's>, <laughs> I think I think yeah. it's best for his best. His, his best bet is to rule through fear, not through uh, through being loved. <laughs> well, he could he could
0: do that. Yeah, he's uh, you know he's a he's a thoughtful guy. He's a he, but he, he does command your full attention. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch what David Malpass does at the World Bank. But I'm very encouraged, Les Munson. I'm very encouraged by Les Munson saying that Malpass will be good for the World Bank, make some positive changes. You heard it first here on the forecast. Lester Munson, thank you so much for being with us. Lester Munson is a principal uh, uh, in the International Group at BGR Group. It's a top government relations firm in Washington, D.C. They consult with foreign governments, corporations, and and he's on the adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins, one of the smartest guys we get to talk to. Lester Munson, thanks so much for being on the Farcast.
4: Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us again this week on the forecast we've had so much to talk about and we appreciate your notes and we appreciate your email that you send us it is very encouraging and we try to answer your questions and get to topics you have suggested to us it is a great privilege for us so with a heart full of thanks please join us again next week please know we appreciate your time with us uh, as you listen along and in Naples Florida uh, my uh, remote and undisclosed location Thanks for being with us. I'm Michael Farr.
2: Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We enjoy making the show for you every week. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard specific investment advice to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The Farcast is for informational purposes, and, well, we hope you enjoy listening it as much as we enjoy making it. Please consult with a financial professional before making any investment decision. If we can be of help at Far Miller in Washington, please give us a call. Join us next week on the Farcast as Michael welcomes back former assistant treasury secretary, principal of Hamilton Place Strategies, and one of the smartest, also one of the nicest guys in Washington, D.C., Tony Frato.